Hello! Welcome to In the Kitchen with Brett Thorne, a podcast by Restaurant Hospitality. I'm your host, Senior Food and Beverage Editor Brett Thorne. For this episode, I spoke with Willis Lawhead, who I first interviewed around 20 years ago when he was the chef of Tantra, an aphrodisiac-themed restaurant in South Beach. Since then, he shifted to hotel work, which was great until the pandemic struck, crushing the hotel business here in New York and throughout the world. So Lawhead moved to the suburbs and is now the chef and assistant general manager at the Crestmont Country Club in West Orange, New Jersey. It's not that unusual a move. Chefs who get worn down by the hectic life of big city kitchens often leave town. In this podcast, Lawhead mentions Alex Lee, who was the executive chef of Restaurant Danielle in New York before heading out to Long Island. If you're considering a similar move, I think you'd have my guest support. It sounds like a pretty good life. And now, here's Willis Lawhead. And uh, so let, let's let's go over your resume. Tell tell everybody what you've been up to since we last spoke. Since 1999, let's see. I I left Tantra to join this little teeny organization called the Ritz Carlton Hotel mm-hmm, Company, mm-hmm. Um, which then got swallowed up, bought up by another teeny organization, slightly bigger, called the Marriott Hotel Company. Yep. Um, so Bill Marriott took over the Ritz while I was there, and uh, and I joined hotels largely coming from independent restaurants. Some great experiences at Tantra, great experiences at Palm Grill. I mean, fantastic, formative in both. And uh, joined hotels in order to become a better manager of people, uh, a little bit more respectful than the young, uh, arrogant chef that that I was. Um, And really to have a future, what I considered in 1999, like, let me have a future in this. I could have split up one of two ways. You know, I could have gone into the TV Food Network, which I thought was selling out, which uh, in retrospect, I could really have used a little bit of selling out rather than uh, all this dignity that I'm I'm forced to live with. but so I had two two options, you know, one was was go the route of uh, television and entertainment and one was to go the route of a manager and uh, and learn and build relationships and, and foster those uh, kind of be mentored and, and uh, mentor other people. So I went from the Ritz Carlton in uh, Coconut Grove, which I opened and I worked for absolutely the best chef uh, I've ever worked for. Uh, a German guy from Spain uh, named Roberto Holtz, who was the best chef and uh, worked for him for a number of years. And then he went back to Spain and then I uh, moved up to New York to open up the MoMA, the modern with uh, Danny Meyer and uh, opened up the bar room there and uh, spent a few years there. Um, which was probably the best opening uh, out of the nine. I think I've done and it was, you know, in 2004, we opened November 21st, I think, 2004. And at that time, I mean, it was just, it was exciting, still pre-smartphone, if, I, if we're dating ourselves. And, um, and it was just, it was a really great uh, opening, great experience, kind of bringing my experience from the Ritz to um, Danny Meyer's Enlightened Hospitality concepts. Um, but also we were doing yummy food, 
you know, just, just plain yummy, uh, enjoyable, not so pretentious barroom uh, style food. So from there, uh, right after, and I think this is the next time we talked, um, right after I was at the Modern for about two and a half years and uh, considering what the next option was, where do I go? Should I join Grey Coons? Uh, we were talking together. You, you thought, should I work with Grey Coons? But what did you decide? I decided that uh, I had ultimately said no to him and I decided to investigate why I said no to probably the best opportunity and certainly the best chef New York had ever seen, um, in, my, in my opinion, has ever seen. Um, and I really investigated that and realized I had spent from the time I graduated college until that particular point working and living focused completely on the 12 inch white or or fancy plate maybe maybe it wasn't so 12 inch white um but focused 100 percent on that and doing no investigation and personal growth personal development um i decided then to step off and travel for about six to nine months i ended up being there for nine months i bought a ticket from new york to singapore and then bought a return ticket nine months later uh, to be home for Christmas with my grandfather um, from Spain, from Barcelona. So between Singapore and Barcelona, I had nothing, no plan and uh, no Kindle at the time, since we're talking about uh, technology. Right. And um, so I, I traveled. I got off the got off the cooking, got away from the, everybody said, oh, you're going to go taste great food. And I said, no, not really. You know, I'm going to eat snails with a toothpick in Morocco. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to eat whatever and uh, experience more and, and really be more alone and uh, focus a little bit on mental health, which I needed to at the time after, uh, you know, all that time in the kitchen. Oh, I want to talk about the nine months you took off you said that was 2009 when was that 2007 2007 oh before the economy fell apart so uh so it wasn't an economic thing it was i need a break from this yeah and it sounds like you said you weren't going to eat great food but then it sounds like you kind of did eat great food it just wasn't going to all of the famous fine dining restaurants it was it was looking around and seeing what was on the street and saying i want that now exactly the best one of the best food memories i have in my life was on that trip and it was in jerba in tunisia and I had come down with pneumonia and was kind of wandering the streets looking for an open pharmacy in this, uh, in this small town, small beach community. And uh, realized I, I had plans to leave Jerba and it was just beautiful. The pottery was gorgeous and the city was, I mean, the town was gorgeous and the vistas were amazing. But I was, I was very ill. I was like 106 fever for a couple of days. And um, so I holed up and repaired myself i had a few books to read and i wrote a postcard every day but i had a little restaurant where i would go and i would have shakshuka i'd never had shakshuka before and uh, my access to to the to that kind of food was very limited uh even in new york at the time it was very very limited and 
So I would have shakshuka with octopus or shakshuka with uh, sardines. And it was just, it was mind blowing, but it was also restorative and it was fantastic. And if I had happened to skip that restaurant, I spent about seven or eight days going to that same restaurant with that same window and just building my health back. But once I got stronger, I would go to the market, which was just two doors down and buy fish off a rope and go to a place uh, across the way that um, also had slaughtered camel uh, available, which I did not partake in the, in the slaughtered camel heads. But, um, but, you know, they would come and they would grill your fish for you and you would sit on a little picnic table and eat with lemon and, and salt. And it was, it, I, I got healthy very quick and I got appreciative of just the, the roundness and the brightness, the flavors of the sun it was beyond restorative. It was, it was memorable. And uh, then I came back and uh, partnered up, worked with Jeffrey Zakarian at Country uh, Restaurant at the Carlton Hotel. And um, after that, went to the little bed and breakfast we call the Plaza Hotel um, of Trump fame and Home Alone 2 fame. And uh, then went to the Union League Club, private club, city club on Park Avenue. And then went to open up the Barclay Hotel for Intercontinental. And then had my daughter um, and decided that the life of a PM chef was not as conducive to, uh, to her, to being a present and mindful father and um, transferred into or, or moved more into food and beverage director position. So I became a food and beverage director at the Crown Plaza Times Square. And then the pandemic hit. I was uh, in line with Highgate Hotels, which runs the Crown Plaza Times Square, to become a hotel manager. That was my career track, you know, that was my path. And then the pandemic hit and uh, did all sorts of freewheeling damage, uh, like, a, like a Tasmanian devil damage uh, to the hotel industry in Manhattan. And I thought at the time, as soon as really it was about March and I was still working and I thought, oh man, this, this doesn't look good. Where, where would I be able to still continue to grow? And I decided that country clubs, um, although I had never imagined ever commuting for work. I mean, I, I, when I was at the MoMA, I lived at 56 between Park and Lex, and that was 53rd and 5th. And, uh, and country, when I took over country, I was at 28th and Park, and that was at 28th and Madison. I mean, it was just, I couldn't be closer. So, uh, but I thought, well, you know, country clubs are where People can be outdoors. People can um, kind of self-socially distance already. You know, it's already built into the fabric of the, to the makeup of a, of a country club. You know, it's already socially distanced. And then you add in social distancing. Um, <laughs> so people will have a life outside and people will uh, support food and beverage from an outdoor perspective rather than a room's, you know, indoor, what's going on at the pool, what's going on at the spa, what's going on in in-room dining perspective, but more like what's going on in the golf course and how do we feed this? So I uh, was lucky enough over the past many years, as we mentioned, to 
have forged a number of relationships, people who had either left uh, the hotel industry or restaurant industry and gone into country clubs or become advisors. You know, I'm thinking of somebody like Dan Dennehy at Club Thinking Partners who became a, a headhunter but also a consultant for businesses uh, in country clubs all over the country and um, came over to Crestmont in New Jersey. Um, and it's a very family-based golf club um, with pool and tennis and uh, a huge, beautiful clubhouse. But really, it's a, it's a lifestyle. It's a family lifestyle that you're able to... I'm building a team now um, with my general manager, who's above me, who I worked under at the, at the Barkley. And um, we're, we've brought over our director of catering from Cipriani, uh, another hotel person. We brought her over our membership director who is a director of sales from another hotel. Um, I'm just bringing in for this season um, a clubhouse event coordinator and a clubhouse coordinator who came, who worked with me at the Crown Plaza, so another hotel person. Um, we have a new manager starting who will be director of food and beverage ostensibly in a hotel world, that would be the title. And he comes from a, a solid 10-year background uh, where I just came from, from Marriott and Essex House and uh, Highgate. Um, so we're bringing this kind of building, this kind of fabric into a different, a different atmosphere, um, a different style of service. You know, hotels are extremely transient and um, based on either the group checking in for three days and what are, you know, what is the programming of that or the family vacation, Brett and I, you know, come in for two days to go to a show and see this, you know, and what do we do? We go to the MoMA, we go to see a Broadway show, we go to Central Park, it's all around programming. Um, but in a country club and uh, private club atmosphere, it's, all about experience and it's much more going back actually to the my experiences at the ritz where it had a private residence uh, component to it where it's really family oriented and memory oriented and you know the person who has a bad experience at dinner um, or a great experience at dinner for better or for worse you're going to hear about it for breakfast the next day for lunch the next day on the golf course and i mean it's 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 something that you have to, it's not transient. You can't say, Oh, thank God they're gone. You know, it's, Oh, you know, you have to live up to the memory, you know, the, right. the whole thing about building the, you know, emotional memory, that a positive one anyway. Yeah. And, right. Not, not only are they not going to be gone, but their grandchildren might come in and be members two generations later. Right. And, uh, you know, the seven-year-old birthday party that I'm doing is going to become a 20-year-old uh, college party, is going to become an alumni college night down the road. I mean, it's, uh, it's multi-generational. It's, it's very, very interesting to me and, and resonates strongly with me. The same reason that I left Tantra, um, which was just a fantastic in-the-moment for the, for, you know, experience, to become a, a more well-rounded, really, manager, but also person, you know, I mean, in charge of memories and, and taking more care, um, both of myself and of others, and they go hand in hand. You know, mental health, I think you'll, you'll see as a subject, depending on your, your questions, but you'll see that as a, as a, a constant 
consideration in the back of my mind. So when I think of country clubs and the food, I think of prime rib and shrimp cocktail and club sandwiches and stuff. So I and I could be completely wrong because I have rarely been to country club venues. But what um, what is the food like, and what are you doing there? Well, I think food in country clubs and look at you know people like Alex Lee or um, other chefs that that have really broadened. But go back to country clubs and just the idea of where they're located. You know. I think originally, yes, uh, a country club was a three martini lunch and a slice of prime rib and, uh, and either hide from your husband or hide from your wife or, you know, however it was built, um, segregate from, from uh, the outside or, or from your family or with your family. Um, but in the past, I would say, I would even put this farther than the, the expansion of, of the Food Network. You, you, it's built around the idea that you have all of this produce uh, or, uh, you know, your farm that you can build or something. I mean, you, you, you have to follow seasons in, in, in a country club. Maybe not so much in a uh, country club that is in a suburb. But in a, in a you know where, where we we actually work pretty close to a suburb here, so I take that back. I would say that the country club food has shifted so much and become more so respectful of the seasons and of the fact that it's based in the country um, in in the rural uh, atmosphere. That yes, prime rib night is ever popular, um, and I love a good prime rib. Yeah, prime rib's great. Yeah, I like serving it. I like making it. I like eating it. I like everything about prime rib, a good salty prime rib. Um, I like the bones. I like, I mean, it's, it's a great thing. But I think it's, uh, it's a night special. It's something to be celebrated. Uh, and I think even country clubs re recognize that. Um, so I think the food has become more personal. Um, it, it is here with me anyway. But um, I think food in general, the, the grandson that we described at the beginning of the conversation knows a lot more about food than I did as a 12 or 13 year old. Sure. Um, or 14 or 15 year old in the, in the 70s. And, um, all right, fine, 80s, early 80s. You know, <laughs> we won't, won't go that far back. Um, but, you know, I think everybody, has a respect for food that didn't exist before. I mean, we have the president of our club uh, here has said to me on numerous occasions, like, oh, my daughter's a, a baker. Um, you know, she's a, I think, I believe a preteen and she's interested in baking. So we're gonna bring her into the, the facility and, and work with her and show her a few tricks and a few, uh, and learn from her. I mean, it couldn't be, um, couldn't be a wholehearted experience if she didn't also do, you know, be hands-on. So, um, and I don't think that existed, you know, in the, you know, you have to get dressed to go to the country club and have your prime rib and, and be obedient mentality. Right. The, the, the Caddyshack era. In, in the Caddyshack era. Um, exactly. So I think the food has become, I know my food has become, and I, I talked to a, a litany of other chefs um, in the area and in other country clubs, 
where it has become more personal and more family oriented, but not family oriented as chicken fingers. It's been more uh, family oriented as in let's um, experience a whole a meal together you know let's experience the whole dining out as as uh, as theater that didn't exist before but did on the outside world um but they're also families of many generations know so much more about food than they did 20 years ago or 15 years ago or, or 10 years ago um so i think that that contributes a lot to the support of the of the chef coming in um, with a with a different background than another country club, and that has been a big wave as well. I mean, it's also I have to say it's why six of our managers and myself are here at this particular country club because we have independent restaurant experience, we have hotel experience, and we have Manhattan experience and Philadelphia experience and Miami experience, and we're all kind of coming together, ones from Italy, and we're all bringing these experiences together to create a, a system that is entertaining to the different generations, you know, and can be engaging to them. So we get back to, um, you know, function versus purpose. You know, yeah, the function is to, to serve a meal and to just simply put food on the plate, but the purpose is really to engage the guest and to create this membership that has a mystique about it. And the only way you can have a purpose and a mystique is to have multi, you know, multi-generational influence and multicultural influence. When I was at the MoMA, the, one of the proudest moments uh, really of my career in the past um, 20 years was I looked at my schedule up and down and I had 32, 32 people on the schedule. And out of that 32, and I'm being a little bit fine-tuned um, in terms of like Mexico regions and, and Southeast Asian regions, but out of that 32, I had 20 di 28 different ethnicities. Um, and I was very, very proud of that. And again, I'm being multi-region, you know, I mean, micro-regional, you know, Oaxaca versus, you know, Guadalajara, um, rather than just he's from Mexico. Right. But I think you have to look at it that way and you have to see Oaxaca as a different influence and, and, and a different ability to bring something to the, the proverbial table in the kitchen. Um, one of the great experiences I had was um, when the Saudi royalty came into the plaza and brought the chef um, from, um, from Riyadh and and, and just an amazing guy, but he called me ahead and he said, listen, um, chef, we're gonna be bringing some food, you know, with some vans and, uh, and transport. We're gonna come in and we're gonna bring some food. And I said, great, you know, I have coolers. It's absolutely no problem. And um, so he gives a call and I said, you know, are you coming tomorrow? No, no, we're delayed, we're in, we're in Paris, but we'll be there the next day. And the next day, are you coming? No, no, we have another day. So finally he says, okay, we're coming, we're getting on the plane. And they arrive at 3 a.m. and just a, just a little food for your coolers. It was six 18-wheel trucks that came off of three transport planes <clears throat> to come into the Plaza Hotel with all of their food. And they brought everything. They brought their oranges. They brought their uh, charcoal. They brought everything. And here I was with like, oh, I'm going to go to 
to PC Richards and get a chest freezer and, you know, really help them out. Right. It, it was not that way. So. So what did you, how did you handle all of that food? Um, <clears throat> I had to completely gut at three in the morning. I had to completely gut at three in the morning our entire walk-ins um, from dry storage, which was closed off and part of a different hallway to our operational dairy, meat, produce, and freezers. I had to take apart all of the, all of the freezers and the refrigerators and uh, do this all while the 18-wheel trucks are going in. It was absolute mayhem, but by the morning, uh, you know, the, the team of chefs came down and was ready to cook for, uh, for royalty, and we made our space, and they ended up, we're just going to stay a few days. Uh, they ended up staying for a month and a half. Uh, so you mentioned something at the at the the modern at MoMA that you had twenty two different ethnic groups. This is something you were very proud of. So how what did that translate into the food? It translated most into the atmosphere. Um, we had a fiercely loyal um, crew, uh, a fiercely loyal brigade um, that supported each other, but. You know, it wasn't so much, uh, oh, let's try, um, let's try this historical Japanese twist or this Oaxacan element or, or, but it was, it was all about technique and support and learning and growing. It was, it was the first time that I really built a team uh, completely from scratch and completely handpicked everybody um, that that it just melded perfect because everybody was there so many different ages, so many different ethnicities, but they all, um, they all supported each other and they all, they all tried. So if, and it was also an atmosphere where if somebody didn't do it correctly, they would teach, or even if they had found a better way, they would say, Hey, I have a better way to make these, you know, mushrooms. Um, so it was this atmosphere of hospitality and, and support that was more than, more than the food.